0: Rebecca Davis, Plan B uh, for people listening on 702. This is something that I do every Thursday after the past 3 News. I'm in conversation with Rebecca Davis of the Daily Maverick about some very, very important things, some of which are very much in the media and some of which are not. Hello, Rebecca. Happy New Year.
1: Hello, John, and to you too. Also, I have a question. Do you have any idea what the legal status is with regards to breaking into your neighbor's flat if they went on holiday and left? Perishables seemingly lying on their kitchen counter or something, and now the stench has taken over the entire flat block. Am I entitled to break down the door and see what's happening? <laughs>
0: you should be entitled to if the law doesn't allow you to protect your health and the health of young 13-month-old miles and other people in the block because, I mean, that is that is a health threat. Rotting produce attracts flies, flies carry disease, so it is a health threat. If you're not allowed to break down the door, you should be allowed to break down the door. Thank How's that you. For a I feel vindicated. Thank you
1: very much.
0: I'm sure you have lots to say about vaccines. Over to you.
1: I do, but slightly less since... Health Minister William Keeley dropped his bomb at the end of his parliamentary address today to say that we are getting those million vaccine doses at the end of February. I mean, at the end of January. It was kind of hilarious, Tom, because it really did take the air out of the sails of pretty much all the MPs. Since the only question on anyone's mind throughout the entire presentation was, "What's going on with the vaccines? Who are you talking to? When will we get them?" I mean, it must have been just agonizing for Mkiza for not to be able to say from the outset, "Will you just shut up for getting these, these doses? Anyway, you know, John, I've been thinking about a lot of things regarding vaccines. One of them is that from what I have seen internationally, there has not been a country in the world where there haven't been complaints to the government about vaccine acquisition and rollout. In the EU, for instance, a tremendous anger. People say, why didn't the EU order more vaccines? Why is this rollout happening so slowly and chaotically? It's the same in the US. The rollout has been hugely criticized. So just to say, as you also get a bit of perspective, this is not a uniquely South African problem, my goodness. Pretty much everywhere, citizens are unhappy with rollouts, with acquisition numbers. And that's because it's the middle of a pandemic and we are all scared to death and we want a magic bullet. I mean, the vaccine is not that, but it's understandable to some degree. But what I'm getting more scared about, John, is the levels of vaccine skepticism among our political classes. And I've been worried about this ever since the Chief Justice McQuain McQuain made his highly dubious comments about vaccines last year. Today, we've seen Kassatu President Zingisa Lossi saying on Thursday to a women's meeting of some kind that South Africa didn't want non-organic vaccines. I literally have no idea what that means. We've seen ANC Harking Secretary Jacob Cowher saying this week, we mustn't accept any vaccines which haven't been developed in Africa. We've seen Tony Engeni, admittedly, who cares what Tony Engeni thinks, but Tony Engeni on Twitter saying he would never accept the vaccine for him and his family. We saw that KwaZulu Natal ANC councillor blaming 5G for the spread of the virus. What I'm saying is this is adding up to a picture in which among our political classes, there appears to be a high degree of vaccine skepticism. Add to that the fact that a recent poll shows 47% of South Africans intend to refuse the vaccine. And all in all, my question is not... I mean, you say you've been fielding the question a lot of times, do I need a vaccine if I've been infected? I think the more salient question might be, how do we persuade people who need it to get vaccinated? Even in the Parliament's portfolio meeting today, we saw MPs asking, well, Inc, a, what about if people have moral, religious, ethical objections to getting vaccinated? And he's saying it won't be compulsory. We simply have to educate people. Well... That clearly is something that is going to have to be massively factored in to what is already a logistically nightmarish operation. The scale of the education campaign, that is going to be required.
0: Yeah, somebody just uh, sent me what, I, <laughs> what must be uh, a fake scientific paper, um, which is, is something we could use for, for parts of our male population that are vaccine skeptic. SARS-CoV-2 recombinant COVID-19 vaccine has been shown in multiple studies to increase penis length by three inches in some individuals.
1: That's the kind of fake news we actually need. (laughs) I mean, it's not...
0: Look, I mean, it's not just South Africa. Um, Maybe our level of suspicion, and and I still don't quite understand, Rebecca, to what extent that 47% is made up of people who have concerns about the speed at which the vaccine has been produced and certified. And even though I personally don't agree with that, uh, I it's... It's so much easier to understand why people go, hold on a second. You know, I mean, we've gone from finding out about the disease to inoculating people with the vaccine in less than a year. That's never happened before. There must be some dangers. I can understand that. So I don't know how many of that 40% are made up of those kinds of objections and then the lunatic fringe. But it's happening in America too. I was reading a story in the New York Times yesterday about some hospitals where up to 50% of the medical staff are refusing to take the vaccine.
1: The medical staff? I mean, that's, that's crazy. But yeah. John, what I was reminded of was Operation Denver, which was the KGB misinformation campaign, hugely successful during the Cold War to spread the fake news that HIV was invented in an American lab. And we know how far this story spread to our own former president, Talbot Mbeki, and it still lingers in Africa. But they found, when looking at how how popular this, this misinformation was and how widely it had been you know, picked up on, that some of the most um, receptive ears to it were African-Americans. And there was a good reason for that, John. It was because African-Americans had been subjected to these terrible junk white science for so long, including the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. So, you know, there is a sense to which black bodies have repeatedly been the victims of bad, bad, unethical science. So from that perspective, it is understandable that there is some degree of skepticism. As you said, particularly when a vaccine has been rolled out in such a short time frame. So I'm with, in general, the people who say let's not laugh at people for this kind of misunderstanding, for this ignorance, etc. Let's not laugh, but for goodness sake, let us educate and at some speed.
0: And then some thoughts on what happened, Capitol Hill, um, into the night and into the early morning hour time?
1: Well... John, I was just so struck by the number of senators and journalists and commentators from America who kept saying, this feels like a third world country. You know, there was a New York Times senior reporter who wrote, this is like watching foreign television, some foreign unstable government struggling with democracy. You know, John, when you have to say, oh, this doesn't feel like America at all every two weeks, then maybe it just is actually America. We're talking about the same country where there have been repeated protests in Michigan by heavily armed members of militia, you know, illegal kind of military operations, including storming the state capitol, including a plot to kidnap the governor. We've seen repeated violent clashes between police and protesters. We've seen this kind of nutty electoral system, which denies people the right to vote, with kind of breathtaking ease. This populist system which sees people vote for judges. I mean, I always mention that because I just find it so insane. So for America to still think that it is the paragon of a democratic society is a little bit ludicrous to me.
0: Um, Seven hundred and two. WhatsApper Rebecca says you must go into that uh, flat next door because it might be your neighbour dis- decomposing there. Not vegetables you know. And I've fruit.
1: thought as much. I have considered a murder, suicide of some sort. Thank you, thank you for vindicating my my conspiracies here, listener.
0: But you're reasonably sure that it is only fruit and vegetables and other. No, yeah, I have no
1: idea at all. Could well be human flesh that's rotting there, John. Well,
0: <laughs> take action. Take action. Uh-
1: Okay. okay. I'll think about it. All
0: right. Um, <laughs> dad the Bean, be the Bean Dad.
1: Bean Dad, John, are you familiar with Bean Dad?
0: I wasn't until you alerted me to the presence in our Twitter society of the Bean Dad.
1: Bean Dad is an American musician called John Roderick. Bean Dad tweeted a lengthy narrative earlier this week about how his 9-year-old daughter, Be bean- called Bean Dad before this, I should specify. He was a nobody, basically, although he was the lead singer of a band. His nine-year-old daughter was hungry for lunch, so he suggested she make some baked beans. She said, well, I don't know how to use the can opener. He said, well, figure it out. His, he claimed that he, he viewed this as a perfect teachable moment. You know, We live in a society where kids are just stuck to their screens. Nobody knows how to do anything practical with their hands anymore. He was an ideal opportunity for his daughter to learn a practical skill. The trouble is it took her six hours to figure out how to open this can during which she became progressively more teary and angry because she was starving for food. All the while he sat by watching her and telling her to figure it out. So this guy tweeted this story as an example of what great parenting he was in fact producing here. And the, the outpouring as you can imagine was horrified. People saying that, you know, you should be reported to social services, that this is the cruelest thing they've ever heard. He ended up leaving Twitter in a huff that he came back with this, you know, this kind of gawning um, apology, etc. But you know what, I'm, I think I might be kind of with it. Is this such a bad thing to have done, to force your nine-year-old daughter to figure out how to open a can of baked beans in order to have food?
0: To make her wait six hours to have food is an act of truly cruel and unusual punishment, Rebecca. I I feel very firmly that that is the case.
1: I think that using hunger as a teaching tool is a bit beyond the pale. But the principle perhaps is not that bad. He also came back afterwards and said he should have specified that they shared a bowl of pistachios during the ordeal and were laughing merrily together, which I think puts a slightly different slant on it. But the idea that it is the worst kind of child cruelty that anyone on the internet has ever seen seems to me to be overblown and i might well this is the internet rebecca i might be asking 13 month old miles to prepare his own supper tonight just as an experiment
0: don't you dare i will come hunting you down rebecca davis of the daily maverick i don't think it's worth spending more than six seconds trying to open a can of baked beans but perhaps that's just me